Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual okay. Tools. I'm glad you're here. Turbulent times. And I heard some wonderful words of advice from Rabbi Akiva Tatz. And he said this in the name of one of his rebbies. And I, I just thought that this was so wonderful and, and, and practical. One of the greatest rabbis in Europe before the war, actually he died al Kiddush Hashem by the hands of the Nazis, was Rabbi Elchanan Wasserman. There's actually a picture of him, one of, one of the greatest. His son, Rabbi Simcha Wasserman, believe it or not, years later started a yeshiva in, in all places in Los Angeles. And Rabbi Akiva Tatz was one of his students there while that yeshiva was there. And Rabbi Simcha Wasserman underwent such tragedies. His whole family basically was just wiped out. And yet the way Rabbi Tatz describes it, he always had this smile and this sparkle and his, his like beautiful blue eyes and this level of calm, which was just so inspiring to people. And people like scratched their heads about it because they, they didn't quite understand. How is it possible that someone who had endured so much just was like that? And so one of the students asked him, how are you the way you are? Just this calm, like tranquil. And here's what he said. Here's the practical advice. You ready? He said, the things that I can do something about, I do something about. And the things that I can't do anything about, I don't worry about. That's amazing. I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say that again. And then Rabbi Tatz added a PS to this, which I thought was really an amazing insight as well. So he said, the things that I can do something about, I do something about. And the things that I can't do anything about, I don't worry about. Those are truly secrets to live by. Now, now listen to this. Rabbi Tatz added just... As a PS, he said, most people do the exact opposite. He said, most people, if there's something that they can do something about, they don't do anything about it. And if there's something that they can't do anything about, they worry about it. (laughs) That is, to me, the human condition right there, isn't it? Like the downside of it, the trap that, that most of us fall into. And, and the solution on the other side. So next time, just to wrap up this thought, ne- next time you, you worry about something, ask yourself, is this something that I can do something about that I'm not doing something about? Because if the answer is yes, you're worrying about something and you say, you know what? I'm just analyzing this. I can actually make this call or write this email or go to this store or ask for this piece of advice or ask this friend for help, whatever it is, whatever the solution is. If there's something that you can do about it, then do it. But if you say to yourself, you know what, I'm worrying about this thing. Is there anything that I can do about it? If the answer is there's nothing I can do about it, then don't worry about it. So that's, that is 
just, again, in, in turbulent times, there's just a lot of what they call free-floating anxiety. And free-floating anxiety, to me, is always very worth addressing. Because if no one wants anxiety, but don't have free-floating anxiety. Like, pin your anxiety down. Make it answer some tough questions. Because then you can then take these next steps to, to practically address whatever is causing you the anxiety. But if it's just free-floating anxiety, then you just know that you're just stressed out and you don't know why, and you, you're not in a place where you can address it. So that's the first step. You say, why am I feeling this way? Is there something I can do about it? If there is, do something. If there isn't, then let it go. It's not in your hands. Okay. So, with that in mind, there are two major things that I want to talk to you about today. This, about this amazing holiday that we just had, and one aspect of it that, that isn't usually delved into at all. And of course, I'm referring to, which is the holiday of the, the receiving of the Torah, and the fact that we have several New Years throughout the year. Most of us are most focused on Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year of Years. But you also have a New Year of Months, that's in Chodesh Nisan, the month of Nisan, that's when Passover is, so that's the first month of the year. You also have the New Year of Kings, so that's interesting. But you, among these New Years that are sprinkled uh, throughout the Jewish calendar, one of them, which is the holiday of receiving the Torah itself, is the New Year of fruit-bearing trees. Isn't that interesting? So Shvu is, we get the Torah on, on, on the day, which is the beginning of the new year of fruit-bearing trees. The symbolism there is something that, that I'd like to address. So let's talk about this aspect of, of Shvuas being the holiday of fruit-bearing trees. And beforehand, I just want to just tell you something very lovely that uh, Rav Frimer says in the Eretz Tzvi, which is, in the Gomorrah, it says that we've got two clusters. We talked about them um, last week. Two clusters of klalas, which is translated in the, in, in the English as curses. And there are two groups of them in the Torah. And both of them were arranged and put in very specific spots by the sages before two New Years. Rosh Hashanah, we read these curses two weeks before Rosh Hashanah starts. And by the way, the, the reason for that is, is fascinating. It could have been the week before Rosh Hashanah starts. And the reason is that the sages were so attuned to our psychology that they didn't want us to go from reading all these curses into sort of like this period where the new year ahead of us was about to be judged. They didn't want it fresh in our minds. So they put it two weeks before the new year started which is a, an extraordinary sensitivity that, that I think just we should recognize. So that's the first New Year. The other New Year, where you find it, is before Shavuos, which again is the New Year for fruit-bearing trees. And so two weeks before that, you've got this other cluster of curses. And you could say, how does that relate to us? It, it, it relates to us in, in a lot of ways. And, and that's what I want to start to delve in now. On the simplest level, the Torah compares human beings to trees. So it is referring to us, and let's focus in on that, but we're going to go deeper than that in a moment. 
But Rav Rimmer points out something very beautiful. The Gomorrah says in Megillah that the reason why we put these clusters of curses before the new year is so that we should get rid of all of the curses before the new year begins. So that when the new year starts, all of that negative energy is out of the way. So that's a great thing. But now listen to this wonderful observation. The, the Parsha that we always read after Shavuos is Naso. And Naso contains Birkas Kahanam, the priestly blessing. So in other words, it's not just that we're getting rid of the curses before the holiday, but once the new year starts, we begin with the blessings. And, and that's the, the situation there. And he says that the same thing holds for Rosh Hashanah as well, because the Zohar says that this period of din, judgment, which starts on Rosh Hashanah, extends through Shmini Atzeres. And on Shmini Atzeres, what are we reading? The Parsha of Vizos HaBrochas. That's the section of the Torah where Moshe is blessing all the tribes. So you see that as soon as the new year is starting, we're saying the blessings. So it's not just getting rid of the curses, it's also adding the blessings. And that's a wonderful, beautiful observation. Okay, so you could say again that I see how Rosh Hashanah applies to us, but how does Shavuos, how, why are we fruit trees, basically? That, that's the question. How does that apply to us? I think in very profound ways we are. And, and let me just begin to, to speak about that. So again, on the simplest level, the Torah itself compares human beings to trees. But let's go deeper. What is fruit in terms of Torah? Fruit is the culmination of the process. Fruit represents our goals being realized. Because when you plant a tree, what's the point of the planting a fruit tree? Is to get the fruit from the tree. So the fruit represents the realization, the attainment of that which we're striving for. Now, why is that? How does that really, just beyond that symbolism, how does it really apply to us? And this is something that I think about quite a bit. And, and I think for all of us living today, this is even more challenging than it's ever been for earlier generations. And basically, it's how long time takes. <laughs> time takes a really long time. I think that's a bumper sticker no one will buy. Time takes a really long time. <laughs> but it's really true. It's really true. And think about it in terms of a fruit tree. You, you plant the tree, and it can take years and years for it to give fruit. And I think that all of us have been raised on movies with what they call in the film industry, they're called montages. Let me tell you what a montage is in case you're not familiar with that, if you're not familiar with that word. So an example would be, which you're all familiar with in, in say romantic comedies or the love montage. You ready? You know what the love montage is? It's, oh, they're walking in the park. And then it's, 
oh, they're splashing each other with water in the pool, a separate scene. And then another one, they're feeding peanuts to the elephant in the zoo. <laughs> it's, it's one scene goes to another scene. Now they're out to dinner. And, and you play like a wonderful song underneath. And usually there's no dialogue. They're just looking at each other lovingly or laughing uproariously <laughs> at, at how entertaining each other is. And then at the end, they're in love. And it, it, it took a minute. And, and for us, it's like, that can, that may never happen. You know how long that takes? The love montage that you see on the air? Or let's take it another version of the same thing, right? Let's take, it, take this, the falling in love process a few steps back, which is like, how about the first date? So there, she's in the dressing room and here's one outfit, here's another outfit, here's another outfit, right? And they're always playing, by the way, Walking on Sunshine in the background, if you've ever noticed, for all of these love montages. But anyway, that aside, how long does that actually take? You've got to go from store to store just to find one outfit that you like. But somehow in this store, there are like eight outfits that are each better than the other. And somehow they miraculously just fly onto your body. You don't have to like laboriously change into one and the other and everything like that. And then you're at home, you're putting on your makeup, and then you cut, and you're in the middle of this dinner. What about waiting for the elevator? What about calling the cab? What about the subway that's not showing up? <laughs> what about waiting for the guy to show up or for the girl to show up? I remember I, I was once fixed up. This was one of the weirdest shidduch dates I ever had in my life. Oh my goodness, I... I'm not going to tell you the story because it's just too depressing. But, but I was, the, before it went even more horribly, I was waiting for a really long time for the person to show up. And I always remember it was on Dizengoff Street in Tel Aviv. And the, one of the waiters who was there just was watching me, just standing on the sidewalk, just clearly waiting. And then I hadn't given up that she was going to show up. But he had given up that she was going to show up. <laughs> And then he just turned to me at one point and he say, hey, no woman, no cry, which is the, a classic Bob Marley lyric. But anyway, she did show up so that it could go even worse. But anyway, that aside, that aside, what effect does this type of editing have on us? And this presentation to us that this is normal life is that it's removing all of the painful waiting. And so, psychologically, see, we know, that what I'm about to tell you, we know rationally is not true. And yet, because we see it happen in this beautifully edited, produced TV or movie all of the time, and we've grown up this way, there's a certain part of our brain that accepts it as truth. Do you understand? So we know that you don't magically open up your front door and then appear in a restaurant <laughs> seated with your food already in front of you. Rationally, we know that. And yet there's this emotional level where we've seen it so many times that we accept it as truth. And so it makes waiting even harder and even longer. I remember I had a, a computer, a laptop, a few years ago, and I had to wait something like 
20 seconds or 30 seconds for it to turn on. And I remember thinking, this is an outrage. <laughs> you know, like, what are they doing to me? What is this tech? I, I need a new computer. I can't spend my whole life waiting for this thing to come on. And it was literally 20 seconds. But it really felt like it was completely shutting down my day. So that's how sensitized we've become to waiting. And so again, human beings are compared to trees. And the natural organic rhythm of growth and of life takes a really long time because to produce fruit, it takes like forever, basically. Okay? So now I want to go deeper still. I told you that why would you plant a fruit tree? And the answer is very clear. It's so that you can get fruit. So if you have a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit, that's a problem, right? By the way, you should know there's a beautiful teaching. I learned it from Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita, who brings out that, that the rabbis teach that in the end of days when Mashiach comes, there are trees that don't bear fruit. It's not that they're fruit-bearing trees that for some reason aren't bearing fruit. They just don't bear fruit. So that's another category of trees. And everyone should know that when Mashiach comes, it says that non-fruit-bearing trees are going to bear fruit. And that's a very awesome idea. In other words, God is going to bless absolutely everything to be fully productive. E even that which in this sort of like time of limitation isn't fully realized. In the end of days, everything is going to get to the place where it's fully producing. So much, and this is one of those mind-bending teachings from Gomorrah Sanhedrin. You ready for this? It says in the end of days, women are going to have a new baby every day. Now, that might sound like, okay, now you've lost me. <laughs> you had me, you lost me. And the rabbis say, when that teaching is brought in the Gomorrah, they say, ah, oh, come on, or the equivalent of such in Aramaic. And the rabbi who brings the teaching says, I can give you a proof. And it's, you can? Like, what's the proof for that? He says, look at a hen. A hen lays a, an egg every day. And you're like, oh, wow, that was a much better proof than I thought it was going to be. So, in other words, that dynamic, if you will, already exists in the world. See, if it didn't exist in the world, then you'd go, it's hard to imagine. But it already exists in the world. So there you have it. Now, this idea that those things which aren't productive, fully productive, and so this would be the non-fruit-bearing tree, okay? And certainly would apply to fruit-bearing trees that didn't give fruit. But 
that everything is going to be productive, there's an even more sort of extreme version of this teaching, which is, again, it says in the Gomorrah, something that seems like very like way out, like how could this be? Which is that in when Mashiach comes, in what we call the Zman HaTikun, this time of fixing, where just like every, just nature is going full throttle, right? Nothing is limiting it or stopping it. It's a full expression of God's will, basically, in action. That, that when you plant wheat, that wheat is going to grow loaves of, loaves of bread, did you hear that that loaves of bread are going to grow on their own as part of the natural process? So if you look at the commentary on that, there are two schools of thought on that teaching. One school of thought is it's a metaphor. That no, loaves of bread are absolutely not going to grow from the ground. That's not what the rabbis are saying at all that what it means is that everything is going to be working really well and that there's not going to be any hunger and that everyone's going to have what they need. So it's a, just a creative way of expressing that thought. The other school of rabbis say, no, it actually means just what it says, that loaves of bread are going to come from the ground. So then the briskerov, now remember the briskerov is one of the greatest analytical minds the Jewish people have ever had. Which side do you think the brisker Rav comes out on? And if you had asked me, I would have probably said, he, he probably says it's a metaphor. And the, I would be wrong, because he says, no, it means loaves of bread are going to come out of the ground. And now he explains it. And his explanation is really awesome. And I really love it. So here it is. Imagine a stalk of wheat. So the stalk of wheat, it just, it grows like pretty tall. And then at the top of the stalk of wheat, there's a kernel of grain. Okay? And so the entire stalk of wheat is really just for the purpose of the kernel of grain that's at the top of it. So again, you see another example of what I would call the evolutionary process that the world is undergoing. And I, I, I often say that the Torah believes in evolution more than Darwin. And what I mean by that is that Darwin said that all of life comes from a single cell, and from that single cell, it evolves into the finished human being. But the Torah says that the entire world itself is evolving and that the world is evolving toward perfection. The world is evolving toward this vision that God had at the very start of creation. Before he even brought the world into being, he had this vision of a perfected world and the world is evolving toward that. Okay? So now, let's revisit the wheat stalk. The wheat stalk is growing, and that takes a long time, right? Not as long as a tree. And then at the top is the wheat kernel. So in other words, the entire process, this whole evolutionary process, if you will, was all going toward the culmination 
of the wheat kernel at the end. Okay. Now what happened when God created the world? God at a certain point said this divine name Shaddai, which is incidentally, we'll say Shakai, but Incidentally, it's spelled Shindalad Yud, and that's the name of God that's on all of our mezuzahs, on the outside, on the case. And sometimes it doesn't spell out the whole name of God, but have you ever noticed that it, every mezuzah on the outside that I've seen has the letter Shin on it? So that letter Shin is the first letter of this divine name. And this is the divine name that God said, remember, the Jewish people understood the dynamics of the Big Bang and creation way before science did. We said it started with a single point and that it expanded outward until God said this divine name which limited and put parameters around creation, Shaddai. By the way, just as an aside, if you think about it, where is the boundary of your room? What is the limitation or the border of your room? It's where your door is, right? Because that ends the room. And isn't it interesting that the divine name, which limits, is right there circumscribing the parameter of your room? So just an application of this that we see. Anyway, when God said this divine name enough, basically he put a pause button on the evolutionary process of the natural order. So now let's get back to the briskarav. So the wheat stalk grows and then it becomes a kernel at the top, but then the pause button got hit on the natural flow of creation. But when God hits the go button again, <laughs> the restart button again, which is going to be the finishing of creation, which is what we call the Messianic period, Mashiach, then you're going to see the process go from stalk to kernel to loaf, which was always the process that was envisioned. It's just that when the pause button got hit, we had to do the work and finish the job. But now creation itself is going to bring out what was always intended to begin with. Isn't that awesome? It's awesome. So now I want to get more psychological. And this is the point that I've been driving toward. If we're trees and fruit is like our goals, we think about ourselves that basically everything is for the goal. And until I achieve the goal, I'm basically nothing. In other words, my, my self-worth is contained and wrapped up in the appearance of that fruit. To the extent that I get that fruit becomes manifest, which means that my goal gets achieved, then I'm something. Before that happens, or until that happens, I'm nothing. When that happens, I become something. So let me give you an example of this from my own life. When I was in high school, 
Actually, I think, actually, even before high school. I, I don't know how it happened or why it happened, but I became obsessed with the idea of going to Harvard. And I remember what I thought was the day before I was going to hear, it may have been the day before I was going to hear, I remember walking into my mother's room and I remember she was in bed and I was standing beside her and I remember telling her these words. I said, you know how when you pour, imagine you have a glass, right? Like a drinking glass and you pour, say, Coca-Cola into the glass and then a lot of it is fizz, right? Like it goes all the way to the top. But then you have to wait for the fizz to settle to see how much liquid is actually in there. I'm sure you can all visualize this. I said to my mom, I feel like I'm that glass of Coke with all that fizz. And I'm about to find out how much content is actually there. And in, in retrospect, I think that was really a horrible thing. I think what I was doing, and I was like too young to know otherwise, or no one had told me, I was effectively handing over my self-esteem to a group of people who didn't know me from a hole in the wall, and allowing them to tell me what my value was. And don't ever do that. Don't ever do that. Because there's a hundred different areas in our life where we have an opportunity to hand over our self-esteem, our sense of self-worth to other people, and to allow them to tell us what our value and what our worth is. Don't ever do it. Don't fall into that trap. You are infinitely precious. Literally, the world can't exist without you because why would have God made you otherwise? God doesn't make anything extra. There isn't an extra letter in the Torah. The whole Torah is invalid if one letter is missing. Each person is a letter. Every single person is absolutely necessary and beloved. And that never changes. That's a constant. That never changes. It's never not true. And so let's go back to the fruit tree. So again, a lot of us, we, the fruit is our goal. And to the extent that the fruit becomes manifest, to the extent that we accomplished our goal, then we say, Okay, I count, I count, meaningful, I'm good, I have value. And to the extent that we don't achieve our goal, then I'm nothing. So we're always something. So how do we get out of that mode of thinking? What's the solution? I think we all understand the problem. But we need a solution, right? So what's the solution? I'm going to tell you a phrase, one of the great phrases in the world. 
And you've probably heard it before, but I, I really want to break it down and analyze it because it's very much a Torah idea. And that is that the journey is the destination. What does that mean, the journey is the destination? Nor normally, we think that I have to get to that place and it'll all be worth it when I get to that place. So in other words, the entire trip is defined by my ability to get to that place. But the journey itself is not valuable. It's just a means to get to that place. So that, this is the opposite of that. This is saying that the journey itself is the destination. So that means that I count whether I achieve my goal and get to my destination or not. <laughs> and then every single day has value. I was just talking to someone who's been going through a frustrating period and they're waiting on some news like this is, again, time takes a long time, our, our bumper sticker. <laughs> and sometimes when you're waiting on news, you can put your life on hold. I know a lot of people, when they're waiting to get married, somehow they just feel, I'm going to do all that stuff when I get married, and, and they put their lives on hold. And it's, it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous rhythm to fall into. Just keep doing, basically. Just keep doing. You'll, there's no limit to stuff to do in the world. So you'll find other stuff to do when you get married. That stuff you will have already done. And you know what? You can do it again. No problem with that. But a lot of times when we're waiting on some kind of news, we put our lives on hold. And so they were sharing with me, they said, my last two months have been completely wasted. I've lost the last two months. And what's a guy, it's a Torah person. I said to him, I said, did you daven every day during those two months? He said, yes. I said, did you learn Torah every day during those two months? He said, yes. I said, those activities are going to last forever. What, what do you mean you didn't do anything? What do you mean you didn't do anything? The irony is that's, this is the core, this is the core of our life in this world. This is what we're going to have for all eternity, not that news, whichever way it goes. And this is the glory, if you will, the glory of being a Torah Jew. Because every single day is filled with the opportunity to do mitzvahs. Every single day is filled with eternity. Every single day, even if nothing is going on, Nothing as pejoratively defined by society that no big event happened or something like that. So to speak, even if nothing is going on, you are absolutely infusing your entire life with meaning. As I like to say, there's no such thing as a secular moment because wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a way to do something to make it holy. You have a drink, you say a blessing, it's holy now. I'll tell you something. It's a slightly different example, but only slightly. One of my favorite stories. I was having 
my family was having dinner uh, at, at someone's house. It was a Shabbos night was many years ago. And a very special person. And there's a mitzvah, actually, to walk someone to the door. And in fact, if you can walk them outside the door, eight feet or so, then that, that's even better. Dalit Amos is the measurement. That's even better. So this person lived it. It was like a two-story place. They, they were on the second floor. So we finished dinner. He walked me to the door, which was very nice. Then he walked me all the way down the steps, walked us all the way down the steps. That was very nice. Then he walked those Daladamos, right, about eight, eight feet. That was really nice. And then he walked us to the corner of the block. And then he kept on walking with us, <laughs> block after block. And I kept on saying, go back. You've, you've, more than, you've more than done the mitzvah. And he just kept on walking with us. And then as we were walking, I was looking, because he was right next to me, I was looking at my feet on the concrete, taking steps, and I was looking at his feet on the concrete, taking steps. And to the outside eye, they looked like the exact same motions. And yet I realized, I'm just walking home. He's doing a Torah mitzvah of escorting a guest out of his house. Every step he's taking is like another portion of eternity, an eternal reward. And I'm just walking home. And yet, if you look at it, I was looking at our two sets of feet, and it looked from the outside the identical. And yet there were two different dimensions of reality playing themselves out. So that's what it is. How dare we call anything mundane? <laughs> How dare we call anything regular? When we have this ability, this gift to alchemize, if you will, just the regular into revealing the divine. So that's, this is the first thing that I want to share with you. And... Again, just to review the major points here, is that the process itself, the day in and the day out, is our lives. I heard Dennis Prager actually say it this way, and I thought this was like an amazing observation, but just this, it was, I thought, one of the great reality checks on this subject. He pointed out, he said, how many days during the year. If you think of all those things that the average person is living for and things like that, like you get a new job or you got a raise on your job or a promotion. Okay. Or you got married or you got a kid. How many days over the course of your entire life is a day like that? And, and I'm talking about someone who's quote unquote having great things happen to them. Like, 10 days, 10 days out of a lifetime? 20 days out of a lifetime? Like, do, do you understand? Do you understand the problem with the math here? Why this is such a reality check? Because even in a version where things are going, quote-unquote, great, it's still going to be the journey still has to be the destination. 
we like unthinkingly lock ourselves into this sort of like crazy mode. And I think part of this is also exacerbated by social media because on social media, everyone's taking the trip of their lifetime every single day and everyone's getting, how many times can you get married? But how everyone's getting married every single day. So how is it that I'm not on my honeymoon today when everyone seems to be on their honeymoon every single day? But again, this is the warped presentation of reality that, that somehow, even though rationally speaking, we know it's not the case, it's like seeps into our emotional whatever, that, that part of our brain, and we allow it to set our expectations. And, and, and that's the thing, because expectations are basically all of life. I can't even tell you how many times, I'll give you an example, and you've probably lived this in your own life, where people have been telling you, oh, you got to see this movie, or you got to watch this TV show. It is, the great, it is the greatest thing ever. I'm telling you, it's the greatest. And then you go, and you're expecting the greatest experience of your life, and it was good. It was good, right? It wasn't the greatest. So you leave a movie that if no one had told you anything about this movie, you would have been, I love this movie. That is such a good movie. If you had been the first to see the movie, you would have been, this was delightful. And yet now the exact same movement, the exact same movie is this big disappointment. And it goes for restaurants and it goes for people and it goes for so much of life. And it's all because of expectations. Ironically, if you, the less we expect, the more we enjoy. That, that's, it shouldn't be counterintuitive, but it is somewhat counterintuitive. Because it's fun to expect the most. And by the way, there are certain versions where you should create expectations. I'll give you an example, okay? Let's say you're going to visit a parent and you go, oh, you know something? I'm going to surprise them. They're going to be so happy. They're going to get a knock on their door and there I am. Just flew in just to see you. It's going to be so good. Can I give you some advice? Tell them that you're going to show up a week or two before you show up. <laughs> you know why? Because they're going to be so delighted. My son's coming. My daughter's coming. <laughs> I can't wait to see them. You will get so much more out of your visit. So that is the power of expectation applied in a good way. But when it comes to us individually and our own experiences, we actually will enjoy life even more by expecting less. Now I want to tell you another story, just about the journey itself being the destination, okay? It's a, an old favorite story of mine. And I was walking to, I was walking to shul Shabbos morning to pray. And that's, by the way, a, a, a great time to talk to God, talk to yourself. They asked the Sanza Rebbe as he was going to go to pray. They say, what do you do before you pray? And he says, I pray. So anyway, the the... 
The walk to shul can be very healing and very therapeutic. You talk to yourself, you talk to God, right? It's it's good. So, by the way, I heard that talking to yourself is an uh, is a sign of intelligence. Answering yourself is a sign of insanity. But but that that's an aside. But I'm walking to shul, and and I just stumbled on this topic. I don't know why. I guess I was just free associating. And I wondered, I asked myself this question. I said, what is your success fantasy? What do you, like, what is, like, the best version of what you would imagine you could do with your life? And so I started thinking at the beginning of that thought, just professionally, right? I said, I write for television. It would be great if I could create a TV show that was just this fabulous smash hit that ran for seasons and, and you know, had like a giant audience and was also a critical success, like the all the critics loved it. I said, that would be good. That, that would be, that would probably be it. And then I asked myself the next question. I said, okay, let's say you had that. What would you be doing right now? And I thought, let's see, it's Shabbos, and it's the morning, so I'd be going to shul. So I'd be going to shul. And then I asked myself, what shul would you be going to? You can go anywhere. I thought, I love the Happy Minion in L.A. That's my favorite shul. So I would be going to the Happy Minion. And then I realized, that's what I'm doing right now! (laughs) So this, this is our life. It's, who do you love to talk to? Make a list. And talk to those people. <laughs> what do you love to do? Just make a list. Do it. <laughs> and remember... A, a productive day is, it can't be defined as the day that you got that job or the day that you met that person. A productive day is a day where you made someone else happy somehow, right? Or you said a true prayer to God. You said one true word in your discussion to God. One true word. Two Rebbe's were talking. The Rebbe of Vitebsk and the Kalisker. And one said to the other, just to daven one true prayer to God, one true prayer. That's all that I ask for. And the other said, I'm not on that level. If I could just daven one true word, just one word in one prayer, everything is worth it. So our expectations, allowing ourselves to redefine what the actual life process is and not to assimilate into our consciousness all these false constructs, right? The edited movies, the love montages, the, the honeymoon photos from Instagram. Nothing, I wish them all the happiness. I, I, I have no problem with people being happy. <laughs> Let everyone be happy. But 
not to the extent that I define my own happiness based on a false construct, and that I define my own process of life solely based on whether the fruit shows up on the tree. Right? Because this world is all process. This world is all process. And there, there are moments where God lets us taste the finish line. That's Shabbos, by the way. Shabbos is a little taste of the next world. Every Shabbos, God gives us this little intuitive glow in our soul, intuitive glow in our soul of what it's going to be like when we just can sit back. And not only can't you do anything, you're commanded not to do anything. So you're not even allowed to feel guilty. (laughs) You get to actually enjoy just being, right? And what could be better than that? And more necessary than that. Okay, I think we're going to end it here and maybe we'll save that next thought for, for another time. But just blessing you all with just that the happiest journeys. Or as one of the great early Hollywood cowboy stars said, happy trails. Thanks for listening. We do this every week. So join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.